This week's podcast is brought to you by the State of Online STEM Education in the U.S., an upcoming national survey from the Online Learning Consortium and the Every Learner Everywhere Network. The survey will explore the online STEM landscape through the lenses of faculty, institutional leadership, researchers, and policymakers. Please sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. With so many colleges closing classes and suddenly shifting online due to concerns over the fast-spreading coronavirus, we're, we're bringing you this bonus episode of the EdSurge podcast. Hi, I'm Jeff Young, an editor here at EdSurge, and, and today we're going to talk with our teaching advice columnist, Bonnie Stahoviak. Uh, one goal is to ask her tips for professors um, who suddenly find themselves asked to teach online with maybe no training in that. And we also talk to her about a debate that's that's kind of going strong on social media, especially among longtime um, online teaching experts, about whether it's good or bad for online learning that there is this crisis forcing so many to try this mode of instruction. For those who don't know her, Stoviak is host of a long-running podcast called Teaching in Higher Ed, and she's the dean of, of teaching and learning at Vanguard University in Southern California. Her campus remains open, at least for now, um, but she is bracing for disruption there, um, as, as so many institutions are if they're not closed already. Here's my conversation with Bonnie, which we recorded yesterday afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us, Bonnie. Oh, thanks for having me here, Jeff. I'm glad we're having this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think if you told me a couple weeks ago that we would have um, all this breaking news about teaching and and uh, online teaching, I would would have been surprised. And, you know, obviously these are, are tough times with this um, rapidly spreading virus and a lot of uncertainty. So these are... Uh, I'm certainly not trying to, to belittle the, the stress that a lot of institutions are under, but I do think that there's um, an interesting moment for the work that you've been doing for so many years, Bonnie, in offering people advice um, and guidance as they do their teaching and to improve their teaching, especially online. And I'm, and so I feel like this is a uh, you know break glass, get Bonnie help out to the to the world and and give some um, tips for folks but um so i wanted to start by just asking um about this debate i'm seeing on twitter uh, that seems to boil down to a concern maybe by some people who've been doing online for a while that as all these classes get canceled and universities just say with very short notice like finish the semester or quarter online um he, do it online, you know, as, and they've, some of these folks probably have never taught online and that the concern is that these will be pretty badly done because of that inexperience and maybe miss, miss, um, you know, maybe people having the wrong idea about how to do it effectively. Are you, are you hearing that? I absolutely am. In fact, I was really happy to see this morning that Jesse Stommel tweeted in response to some of this, because a lot of it's getting really critical, like, what you're doing, that's not online teaching. What we're doing, you know, you don't, you're not in the cool kids club, you know, a little bit of that going on. And his response was to remind all of us that yes, online, online teaching is hard. And it's, he didn't say this part. I'm saying this part, like it's possible that what you're doing actually isn't online teaching. And that's what you're hearing from a lot of the social networks right now. But then he comes back and says, teaching is hard. They're, they're both hard. And we don't talk enough about pedagogy in general, let alone when that becomes digital pedagogy. So one of the things I think we need to be saying is, come on over. 
there's a whole network of people that have been doing this for a long time and have failed and experimented and tried things. We would love to be able to help you just make that move. Let's start with some small things. If you're going to make that kind of change, you're going to start small. I love what many of the universal design for learning people say. Tom Tobin is the first person who taught me about this, but it's a UDL principle and that's plus one. Don't think you're going to transform your entire course to the greatest online courses ever exist. Do a plus one. What can I do this week? What can I do in the next two days, you know, to, to be able to meet the needs? And you mentioned this up top. Our students are stressed. This is scaring them. And some of it is needless fears in this sense. All of us, not just students, but all of us are, are sometimes having some fears that aren't really helpful to us in our lives. But some of it, their lives are being impacted and I think it's important to recognize that that's what's that's what's going on here. Both, both, you know, fear that's not helpful in our lives. We haven't evolved out of the fight or flight response, so we hear that something might be happening, and that can be unhealthy. But also, it's really does have that potential. And as you said, on a day by day moment, this stuff is changing for sure. And, and I think we'll get back to to that in a minute. But I, I mean, it is it just strikes me that some of these comments on on Twitter, and I, I totally understand where they're coming from. Um, but is almost like that frustration by somebody who's the, you know, longtime movie reviewer when somebody comes in and, and acts like they know everything about film history, because they watched one, you know, artsy film, but the, the, the somebody being like, well, you're doing it wrong the way you're doing that. But you're saying um, that, that this is not a time to to say go away from online learning. I think that's such a helpful analogy and I'm going to be taking it with me after today because I want to say to people, come on in. The movie theater is nice. I've got some popcorn for you and we've got some water to drink and come on in. It's a large theater. There's lots of people that have been around watching, you know, many movies, as you said, and are experts at maybe showing you what you might not see initially, but also your perspective is valued and we welcome you into the show. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I feel like there is this this history with online teaching when, I mean, there's some of the same attitudes happened when some colleges that were very early on, sometimes community colleges or, you know, um, not the famous selective colleges were doing online for many, many years. And then some big name, you know, elite colleges get into it and, and people got frustrated that like, oh, come on, you know, like you guys are just getting here and you're not even looking at what had come before. So I wonder if that's a little bit of a part of some of this reaction. Yeah, I can't tell you the number of times I come back to what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that's named after after a researcher, but but the idea that the more you know about something, the more you realize that you don't know. One of the things I think is helpful to me is just to be thinking about, I mean, I've been doing this since I was in a franchising industry. And so we, I can... We had with the Middle East and Asia and Europe, I mean, and these online sessions... Oh gosh, 30 years ago, I mean, early, early on, back to when interactive online learning used to mean if you clicked a button on your screen, that meant it was interactive. But even if you've been doing this a long time, many of us still feel like there's so much more we could do and so much more to learn. And so being a part of a community and recognizing that you're part of many, many people working in solidarity together to help our students and help other faculty, you know, to make these kinds of transitions, whether it's the coronavirus today or some other thing that raises a sense of urgency tomorrow. Okay, well, let's get to that um, 
you know, people listen to your podcast, the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, and people read your columns on EdSurge, I think, because you do have this, you know, experience doing this online teaching and, and this um, wealth of information and having talked to so many people that do it. So what are some tips, right? Let's say there's a, a reader or a listener out there who, because of this coronavirus, is suddenly charged um, with teaching or trying to finish up their semester in, in as best as they can online. What are some tips for them? The first thing to consider is that you're likely going to need to relocate your course. If it doesn't already exist in a hybrid format, if there's not already online components that are there, then a first step can be to take what would have been your in-person class and to move it online. And Jeff, you mentioned earlier that there are some people critiquing that because we don't want you to think that that means you have checked the box and you now are an expert online instructor at the same time, I want you to, I, I mean, I'd rather that you do that for your students, for yourself, than to cancel all the classes. So let's think about what that would look like to move an in-person class online. So you're going to need a web conferencing tool. Many of our institutions use ones like Zoom or Skype. There are many others. A lot of colleges, they already have a license. You might ask your IT department, right? They might already have um, a deal with some company to provide this. So you don't have to probably go further than your own administration. You'll want to think about shortening that experience. The online environment tends to have shorter, more compact opportunities, and then other things to do that are more engaging than just sitting and listening. You'll also want to be thinking about that your students may be joining your class live via their mobile device, or they might be joining it not live, but watching a recording later on. So be, be sure to record it. And a couple of things just in terms of being in front of a class online is to think about your webcam and having your light source in the room come from in front of you so that the light is shining on your face as opposed to turning you into this shadowy figure that kind of looks a little scary. <laughs> yeah, you don't you're not filming a film noir movie here. You're you're back to the, our, our talk of Hollywood during this 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 talk here. But yeah, you, you wanted to and you can just see that on your screen, right? Whether it's it's shadowy or, or bright. That's such a good thing, too, because think of it, you can join and you should join the session early so you can see yourself on the film. Look at yourself. <laughs> Where's the light coming from? Is it the right positioning for that camera? And the other thing to think about is that you can simulate eye contact by looking at the camera that for many of us is sitting on top of our monitor and have your notes up there as close to that as possible so you can move it up on your screen and have it as high up as you can so that you're more often to be able to look up and simulate that eye contact. And it, and it really does make a difference. We've done little experiments together and had people practice because this is really where interviews are moving to. More companies are choosing to do interviews with web conferencing too. So we got to build up these skills. That is one of the, if we think about taking the silver linings out of really disruptive things like this, one silver lining is being able to, yes, build up the skills of more of us in faculty positions and also being able to build that up for our students as well. How do you engage online with other people? So the, the having the shorter sessions, the last piece of advice I would give you just around getting started with moving your class online is to include at least three polls or opportunities to interact in some way during that session. So whether that's asking a question that students then answer in a chat box or having that built in, many of these systems have polling within them. You can ask a multiple choice question and then show. Now, 
for many of us, these our classes, whether we're in person or online, are a lot more of conversations. So I'm more specifically giving this advice to people who need to have their classes their lectures be a little bit more dynamic and recognizing that there's other people on the end. And if you sort of forget about them because you're not making eye contact, you look like a shadowy figure and you've never asked them a single question, you're going to find that the drop off of the people that actually show up. I think we can do a lot of service for our students to be some sort of normalcy. So when you were saying, Jeff, some people are critical of that's not online teaching, you're not doing it right. I say, come on in, give it a try, but be present for students, recognize there are people on the other end. Leave a little bit of time to check in. See what's going on on their end. Are they scared? Are they, are, are, what, you know, what's going on in their circumstances? And just leave a little bit of room for that, too, to give them a little bit of normalcy. After the break, how professors are making the coronavirus outbreak a teachable moment about how to avoid misinformation online. Stay with us. This week's episode is brought to you by Every Learner Everywhere in partnership with the Online Learning Consortium. They're running a survey of the online STEM landscape. I asked the survey's leader, Devin Kinsilla, what cultural factors are holding back adoption of online STEM education? It's a very safe thing to do to kind of continue with these labs that have been taught, you know, for generations, quite honestly. I mean, we had evidence that some of the labs that that we see in undergraduate labs are can direct the lineage goes right back to the 1890s and you can kind of follow I mean you know things change a little bit modernize a little bit different equipment but the origin is actually in the 1890s which is good and bad but there's also a number of other things you know one is is that it's going I think it's going to come out very clearly people haven't come to grips with what a hands-on experience in a lab is when you first ask faculty why are they doing labs probably the first or second thing they say is because they need a hands-on experience with the tools of science And, you know, so they're not quite sure how that happens in an online environment, even if you have a wonderful simulation or if you have, you're actually using real instrumentation with robotic arms and it's, but the experiment is a hundred miles away. So it's that kind of concept, cultural concept that they need a hands-on experience in their lab, in their, you know, kind of going through school that does that. You can sign up and take the survey at studyinput.com. That's studyinput.com. Now back to the episode. And so you're you're continuing to teach um, and, and there, and your classes are not canceled at your university. What are some of the? I mean, how are students doing as as you see it? You you mentioned I'm I'm chuckling not not to make light of it as you said, but I'm chuckling a little bit because I'm looking at the clock. Well, you know, <laughs> it could be a matter of time because things really are changing on a day by day basis. Just yesterday, I had a meeting with my students and something didn't go as I had planned. And I looked around at all of their faces and they are just, it's one week before our spring break. This is normal for one week before our spring break for students to be feeling stressed during their semester. This is very normal. And so I had just decided, you know what, we can watch the last 45 minutes of this next week or actually two weeks later, I can rearrange I just wanted to check in with them. So we have a little thing we do where they bring in business ethics news. And as you could imagine, the coronavirus has been coming up a lot. So we sort of just transitioned over to that. And all kinds of stuff came up. One of the young women shared about her mom being in a low-wage job and how her pay had just been cut 80% because whatever industry it is that she's in, that there just isn't as much need for the services that she typically would provide. There's hourly hourly wage job and then other students you know other students Jeff were experiencing stuff that has nothing to do with this 
nothing to do with this, but that's part of their lives. And then this overwhelming, just feeling of angst. So I felt like I was able to answer some of their questions, but also reemphasize that we need to be looking to science at times like this. We need to be looking to experts at times like this. So it was part of just an opportunity to reinforce, you know, they're, they're looking to me as a source of authority. I'm going, you understand, I don't know anything, but here are the the places that I trust for information. And here's some things we can be thinking about. And they actually did bring up a couple of things that they had heard that are absolutely not true. But this you know, is about the coronavirus spread you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, the misinformation. Of course, it would get to them and they have questions. So I was so glad that we had the opportunity just to break away from whatever I had planned for that day. We really need to be able to do that as teachers, whether it's thinking about how to move our classes online or whether it's just thinking about opening up the opportunity for our students to engage and let us know what they're experiencing. Another tip in terms of moving our classes online is to recognize not only do we need to make them shorter, not only do we need to think think about being present for them and that there's other people, but also think about recording the classes. And immediately then, I always just, it shows up on the desktop on my computer, I drag it immediately over to our learning management system so that students have an opportunity to not come to class when we've scheduled it, but still be able to watch that later on and have some other way of engaging. And I do want to just mention, because I, I do this a lot, when I say that I move it to our learning management system, ours has a video service inside of it. We happen to use Canvas. It has a service that's called Studio. But if your learning management system didn't have a video service inside of it, if you drag a file that huge, most of the time it won't even let you. It'll say, too big, too big, you can't upload this. But if it managed to let you, that's going to be like the slowest way to let someone watch a video. So instead, you'd want to put it on a service like YouTube. You can make those videos unlisted about... 97.5% of my videos on YouTube are unlisted, but then I can embed them over onto the learning management system. It's the best of all worlds. Their learning exists in that place. They are, they're familiar with that environment. They know how to get there. But also the streaming then is it's at, at its most powerful because it's a video service and it's intended to provide for low bandwidth situations, which a lot of our students will have as they're using mobile devices more and more, just in general, but also because of this crisis. Now, we are also seeing a lot of, um, on social media, we're noticing, and I'm, I'm guessing you are too, that a lot of resource sharing by folks in higher ed and in maybe in um, high schools or, or whatever teaching and feeling like, you know, sharing the information about what their campus or, or, or school is doing and maybe some of these t- teaching tips. What, what kind of things are you seeing? I've really been amazed at this, Jeff. I've, I'm on a task force now with our vice presidents and then a group of us that have been deemed as essential personnel. And at first I was thinking, oh gosh, I don't, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing here. But a lot of people have already really done this in prior iterations, whether it was campuses that were affected by fires or other kinds of crises. And so a number of individuals, including Daniel Stanford, who's the director of faculty development and Technology Innovation at the Center for Teaching and Learning at DePaul University. He's put together a whole spreadsheet that's curated from institutions from all around. And it it was so great to me to watch it initially. It was over on a Google Doc. These are resources. Um, what's the title of this one? It's like resources for campuses dealing with these um, sudden closures, right? Remote Resources for Business Continuity. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. one of the common names that you'll see is keep teaching, and you'll also see class continuity as a theme that comes up a lot, or academic com- continuity. It started out as a Google Doc, and when I first went up there, it was really fun just to see in the upper right-hand corner. If someone's logged in there, then you'll see their little avatar, but if they're not, you see the little characters. I don't even know what they're called, but just the numbers of people that were going up there and using that information, but also contributing it to it. I can only imagine it kind of got a little bit out of control. So now it's on this dedicated spreadsheet has an opportunity for you to submit new links to share what your campus is doing. And then he keeps it all updated and alphabetized. And this was a wealth of information to me, not just specific to my functions, but also to share with other colleagues who are in related departments that we're all working to try to see if our campus is affected. Here are some experts that already have thought through some of the things that we hadn't yet. Yeah. So Bonnie, you mentioned a minute ago that there is this, um, you know, potential out there for misinformation about this, this coronavirus and COVID-19. So, um, that is something, it seems like an educational teach, teachable moment for, for, for professors and, and teachers. Just like I had mentioned with online teaching, we want to encourage if this is your first time, you know, thinking about moving your class online, you are more than welcome in the movie theater. As you said earlier, I am finding the experts around misinformation seizing this same opportunity. There's a leadership author who writes a lot about change and his name is John Cotter. And that first step of, I think, 11 steps involving how do you influence change is to create a sense of urgency. Well, the coronavirus is doing that for us, but many of us have been concerned about misinformation long before this particular version of the coronavirus, the COVID-19 has showed up in our world. And Mike Caulfield is one of those experts. He's at Washington State University and also works with a number of nonprofits that are fighting against mis- that are fighting against misinformation. And he has a wonderful resource called Sifting Through the Coronavirus Outbreak. SIFT is an acronym that he tried to use to replace some of the acronyms that were less helpful in information literacy. So SIFT it st- stands for Stop, Investigate the Source find better coverage, trace claims, quotes, and media to the original content. So if you're interested in misinformation, Mike has a wonderful three-hour course. It's online, entirely self-paced and free that you can use. You can also download his materials and then customize them for any class that you were teaching. But because I think when things like this come up, Jeff, we were saying just how important it is to talk about it with our students, to over-communicate, to leave plenty of opportunities open for them to have their questions answered. Same thing here. He's taking advantage of the fact that this is showing up so much in the news, but the reality is it's also showing up in the misinformation news (laughs) and to help combat that, the attention that it gets, it's the same skills he's been teaching for a while now, this SIFT acronym, this method, but it's specific to the coronavirus. And I sat in on a 45 minute webinar that he did the other day with people from all over the world looking through this. And it just helps to take that new lens. We have this sense of urgency, take the new lens, but practice some of these skills that some of us have been trying out for a while now. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your expertise and and your, your thoughts today. Thanks for having me here. And Jeff, I really appreciated your great analogies today. I'm going to be taking those away and sharing them. We have a meeting later on today talking about our continued conversations around how we will respond if our campus is hit. Great. Well, I'll let you get to that. Thanks again, Bonnie. This has been a bonus episode of the EdSurge podcast. 
As regular listeners know, we typically drop new episodes every Tuesday. Please subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, tell a friend or leave us a rating. And if you want up-to-the-minute coverage of how coronavirus is impacting education at all levels, check out edsurge.com. We're publishing many articles each day on lots of angles, including one today about how educators are organizing their own impromptu events to make up for canceled education conferences. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, and thanks again to Bonnie Stahoviak for, for joining us on a short notice. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.